On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we're chatting with Sasha Rothschild. Sasha is an Emmy-nominated screenwriter who has written on and produced lauded shows such as The Carrie Diaries, Glow, The Bold Type, and The Babysitter's Club. She has written for LA Weekly, The Los Angeles Times, Elle, and The Miami Herald. Her debut novel, Blood Sugar, is out now. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to talk about the book. And there's also so many other things I want to talk to you about. So we have a lot to get through. But why don't you start by telling us about Blood Sugar a little bit? I have never written a novel before and I had never written any kind of thriller or crime mystery situation. I have really just been a comedy writer for most of my life. And several years ago, my husband, who is a type 1 diabetic in real life, he has a continuous glucose monitor that if he goes very low at night, it beeps. And this is to prevent a low blood sugar while he's sleeping, which can actually cause death. And it's called dead in bed. It's a real thing for type 1s. So his alarm goes off in the middle of the night. I wake up. I wake him up. He eats sugar by the bed. He's fine. But I can't fall back asleep. And my writer brain kicks in. And at first I'm like, oh my God, what if he died? And that was very traumatic and upsetting. But like 30 seconds later, my like story brain comes in and I'm like, (laughs) of course. And I'm like, wait, if he died and the police showed up, would they think I killed him? Because the spouse is always the first suspect, no matter what, it's always the spouse. And then I was like, well, but then what if I had actually killed other people in my past and gotten away with it. And now he's dead and I'm being investigated for the one thing I didn't do. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a novel. This is a thriller. This is something that I've never attempted before. But I could try to write this. And I grabbed my cell phone and I like took notes at three in the morning on my phone. And then I fell asleep. And the next morning I looked at the notes. And I was like, I think this, oh, this holds is something. Up. Yes. This is something. Right, because we know so many of those middle of the night notes don't always yes. hold up, but that yeah. that did. Yeah, and and, and I started I, I started writing. Um and that was you know, a few years ago. I've learned novels are very long and uh there was a lot I didn't know in terms of structure, but that was the beginning of blood sugar. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love that. So on this podcast, we focused on complicated women. That's our tagline. We're complicated. And Ruby Simon is many things, a murderer just being one of them. So she's also though a devoted sister a wife, a psychologist. So we'd love to hear about your development of Ruby and maybe any challenges you faced when writing her. Yes, so I absolutely agree she's complicated. And what really interested me and what I hope happens with this book is that people argue about it. And some people love Ruby and relate to Ruby and think, oh, I could be her or I could be her friend. And other people are horrified. I think there's something really interesting in causing debate 
for me, I understood Ruby immediately and got in her head and chose to write it in first person because I thought here's a way that we can hear her truth, whether the reader decides that she's reliable or not is up to them. But Ruby is trying to tell us the truth, the way she sees it. And I thought to start with a character who murders a little boy in the first two pages, which is not really a spoiler because it literally is page two. (laughs) If I can show that that murder comes from love, that is something that a lot of people can immediately relate to. And I have an older sister in real life and an older brother. And there's a lot of stuff about older siblings taking care of younger siblings in literature and in, in life and in TV and movies. But I haven't seen a lot about the younger sibling having a strength that the older siblings might not have and yeah. stepping up. So I was really curious to delve into that and make the younger sibling the one that does something shocking to protect the older sibling. And so that was one way in that I immediately wanted to explore Ruby and that she is complicated because she does this terrible thing, but she does it for love. So that's just one part of that whole answer to that question. Right. Yeah. And you've already touched on so many other things that we want to talk about. You want to, Kate, you want to read the quote? Or Yeah. I mean, you you were just mentioning this. We read a quote, which we loved. It said, I hope blood sugar is debated, you said. Perhaps not liked by all readers, but if I can start some conversations and get readers riled up, either because they loved it or hated it, I will feel I've accomplished something special. We love that. Yeah. I mean, as I said in our intro, we call our interviews complicated conversations. So we are obviously aligned with that. Why is that something that's important to you to start a conversation? Because you could have written a likable character or you could have written a purely unlikable character with no other texture to it. But you wanted something that could split people. For me, the joy of reading is talking about what I've read, some of the joy. And I love being in a book club. I love when we disagree. You know, I've written for television for a long time, and most of my shows are centered around strong, complicated women. Glow certainly is. I think, you know, Carrie Diaries, although younger, absolutely is. The Babysitter's Club, although for young women, I'm very proud of it because it's not patronizing at all. It's very much, this is how girls feel and how they communicate and they're not all right and they're not all wrong. So I think I just wanted to take the themes that I love and move it into this woman who happens to have killed some people. And I think especially when I started out in LA when I moved here right after we all graduated from Boston College, I was told a lot the female character has to be likable and is she likable enough and women were often sort of a prop for the male character. And I have fought that for 20 years in L.A. And I've come to a place where now there's lots of complicated characters. And so I definitely wanted to lean into that and make it not easy for the reader to decide. Yeah, you certainly did that. She is, like you already said, she's doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. And what kind of permission does that give her? She's also taking things into her own hands when someone would say, oh, there's a system for that. But then you can say, well, those systems are often broken or weighted against women or people of color. And so you can have that debate. That's my favorite stuff, too. That's what this whole podcast is about. So we're definitely aligned with you. But you've also talked about when you first came to L.A. and and it's gotten better, but the unlikable female protagonist. And has she had permission to grow? Has she had permission to change and, and be more of herself? We think so. It's still, I think, a struggle, but it is better than it has been. And for us, it just means that she's complicated. She has more than one side to her. 
Yeah, I think complicated women are definitely more acceptable. And I think that's because there's more women in Hollywood writing and directing, for sure. When I started in 1998, I was told sort of the unwritten rule was every writer's room, every TV show can have one woman can be there in that room. And there's like eight or nine men. So I was trying to get the one woman slot. And it was just kind of like, that's the way it is. And I didn't totally realize how awful that was because I was so in it that it took me a solid like 10 years of working and trying and like building my skills and my my community here in LA that I was like, that is messed up. And it truly landed on me. Not that this is well, this is about complicated women. So Genji Cohan, who created Orange is a New Black and Weeds and is incredible, she was the executive producer on Glow. And when I first went to that office to interview, I went to the bathroom and I saw a cabinet of like 35 different types of tampons. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Not the one little box of tampons <laughs> hidden in the back, like to be ashamed right. under yeah. the sink behind the paper towel. Right. But like every type of tampon, every type of flow and this oh. and that and brand. <laughs> yes. And I realized this is an office for women. This is a mm. space for women. And it, it really hit me. I almost burst into tears in that bathroom because it didn't occur to me how uninvited women were everywhere else until I really saw that bathroom. And that was a huge moment for me, sort of professionally. I yeah. don't even know what, it, what question that answers, but but I think she's been a huge voice in changing mm-hmm. that in Hollywood. Yeah. When I graduated, I went to law school and then was a commercial real estate finance lawyer. And same thing. I didn't even know. I was young. I was naive. I didn't even know that it was like there's one woman around and there is no woman's bathroom. And, you know, the same kind of idea. And then once you do see it and once you have a different environment, you're like, whoa, what was I doing for so long? How is that all okay? But I also wanted to know, like, what is it for you that helps you give more dimension? Because no one wants any character that's one dimensional and unlikable could be one of those things. So what do you do to give more dimension to someone who a character who may be considered unlikable? I think for me, there are three things that I'm interested in writing for my characters. One is the self-awareness. I think if a character is self-aware, you can give them more leeway because they know their flaws. And I I think this is in real life, too. Yeah, I I was going to (laughs) say. If I have a friend who's always late and is like, I suck, I'm always late, please bear with me. I'm like, okay, I can, I know you're my friend who's always late. If I have a friend who's always late and is like, oh, this in traffic or that, and and I'm just like, no, you're... You're a dick because you're always late, you know. And so I think self-awareness is huge. Also, for me, humor plus emotion is what makes people likable, what makes characters relatable, and what, for me, I am interested in writing and watching. Everything I do has a bit of humor in it and has some real emotion to it, I hope. That's my goal. Mm -hmm. So I think even though... Blood Sugar is a Thriller, which has interestingly now been debated this week, which I'm also all for about, is it truly a thriller genre? Is it not? Is it a contemporary or is it a domestic thriller? Is it just a contemporary work of fiction? You know, I know that books need to be marketed. They need to be put on a shelf. And I'm thrilled that people are arguing where what shelf it should be on. That's great. 
But even with this, even with this sort of being a twisty cliffhanger thriller, I still wanted there to be some humor Mm -hmm. and some emotion. And I think that, you know, hopefully I brought both those things. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. And then what the one other thing, and I'm sure everyone's hearing my dogs barking in the background, but one trope (laughs) for serial killers is always that they're very cruel to animals when they're young, that they sort of torture animals. And I wanted to flip that. And there's this famous screenwriting book called Save the Cat, which is just a great, Mm -hmm. and it's literally like, your character can do anything, just have him save the cat in the first five minutes in the movie, and then you want to root for that guy. So I literally sort of had Ruby Simon save a cat as a nod to that, and also to sort of push back on this notion that anyone who kills people must be cruel to animals. But then I really used the cat as a true source of plot and story and emotion and all those things. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that too. (laughs) So you said that this was your first novel, but I know that you've written a book before this. So let me back up. I was actually first introduced to you on Mark Marin's podcast when you and two other writers came on to talk about Glow. And you really stood out for me on that episode. Something about the way you spoke about your growing up in Miami, your relationships, your ambition. So after I listened to that episode, I immediately went and bought your book, How to Get Divorced by Age by 30, Your Starter Marriage, or Misguided Attempt at a Starter Marriage, I think it is. <laughs> so I looked it up on my Amazon orders. I purchased it July 18th, 2017. So I have been a fan for a while. <laughs> and I did not marry my starter husband, but we were engaged and planned an entire wedding and lived together. And so I could relate to so much of what you were talking about in that book, the kind of misguided things that you're looking for and you think this will do something for me. And then you realize, "Mm, no, that wasn't, (laughs) it came out of a different place. So I related to so much of that book and I loved it. And it's the same thing. Thank you. Such a page turner, humor, complicated issues. I thought they were very similar, which is unusual for memoir versus novel. But can you tell us a little bit about how that book came to be? Because I think there's an interesting story behind that. Yeah. So I um, moved to LA and was going to be a writer and started waitressing and having all the weird jobs. And I started dating this lovely bartender actor and I was a cocktail waitress writer and I was very you know am still very type a and organized and um had this check it off my list feeling of marriage and owning a house and all the things that you think you know maybe you're supposed to do by a certain age and I wedged myself into that marriage and while all this was happening I was feeling very not creatively satisfied because I was almost getting hired and almost having things produced but nothing was going so I started writing articles because they were actually getting printed and I would write something with my voice and a month later it would like be in a magazine and it was really exciting to see that so after I got divorced uh, by 30 I realized Five of my other friends had all gotten married at 27 and divorced by 30. And I will preface this by saying none of us had children. So it felt very easy and not dramatic and not like we were destroying young lives. So there is a comedic element to it. And I thought, this is something. This is like a mass exodus of marriage. So I wrote this article, How to Get Divorced by 30, for LA Weekly. And they ended up putting it on the actual cover of LA Weekly. And it was the article that week. And then within one week, my 10 years of work in LA, I got a book deal and a movie deal in in one week. So my whole life changed and all the work I had put in the almost, almost this script, that script, it all came together. So that's how the book then came about. 
I was contacted by Plume, a division of Penguin, and, and I said, actually, I've been working on a memoir for a while, my antics growing up in Miami, but I didn't really have an anchor. And then I realized that my marriage and divorce was the anchor, and I could then go back in time, which similarly, Blood Sugar definitely mm-hmm. has a similar sort of structure where Ruby is in a police station, and then she goes back in time to sort of explain how she got there. And right. by the way, also has a similar name, because your flat screen TV <laughs> named Ruby. <laughs> yes. So Ruby has yeah. always been like, I always wanted to be named Ruby. I thought Ruby Rothschild would have been the best name ever. It is. Oh, that would have been name. my like little secret it's so, identity. Yeah, secret identity. So I feel like whenever I've had a chance to name anything, it's Ruby. That's that's my cousin's name is Ruby and she was not named Ruby until she came home from the hospital. They had completely different name. They had monograms and and then they came home and she was like, she's she's not that name. She's a Ruby. So they changed it after that. But it's so funny. That's awesome. Good name. It is. is. Well, and Ruby Rothschild's even. Yeah. Even better. Pretty good. good. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, we said in your in the opening bio that you're an Emmy nominated TV writer. I read that writing this novel, you approached it a lot like a TV writer or used so much of your experience or what you've learned there, what makes for good television writing. You applied that to writing this novel. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about that and and how your TV writing permeated what you did here. With TV writing, and I've talked about this a little bit the past couple of weeks, every word costs money. And this was something I learned on the Carrie Diaries. I had written a scene, Carrie walks down the street and it's windy and she's cold. And I was in New York for filming and the line producer, who's the person who's in charge of literally the money stuff, said, you know, can we talk about this wind? Because to create the wind, we're going to need wind machines. We're going to have to have somebody dealing with her hair. We're going to probably have to VFX the trees moving. And I realized, oh my God, they really make wind. Like I wrote the word windy and then they're going to have to make it look windy. And I said, we can, we can forget the wind and just have Carrie like be cold and hold her coat. And uh, it made me realize the scope of television and how every detail has to be important and has to either help with story or character or plot or be very emotional or very funny or else it's a waste of money. So when I started writing the novel where you can have all the words and they're all free, it was very freeing. But then my sort of TV brain kicked in and I thought, I'm going to go through and edit and sort of try and take out anything that's not important. And I'm going to try and look at it like it's a TV show, because if it's not important enough to be in a scene, then why bog the reader down with this information? So that's one way that I pulled in my TV stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And the short chapters, I felt like it was very, I don't know, felt like I was going to the next scene, yeah. the next yes. scene which really propelled the, the narrative too, but felt TV-like to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in a good way. Your pacing is relentless. Yeah. I really could not stop. I'd be like so tired, eyes closing. I'm like, yeah. I gotta just read one more. I gotta read one more page. So that-, that was by design. I'm glad it worked. So I've worked at Netflix for several shows now, and there's, you know, definitely this sort of feeling of click to the next episode, yes. click to the next episode. And I did, I wanted to write a novel that was bingeable. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. Success. You yeah. you achieved that. And you also the had Netflix such a version. strong voice that and that must come from TV. But even in your memoir, too, it's such such a strong voice that you want to read it and follow it and pay attention to me is is what the whole book was screaming. So um, thank you. Yeah. But speaking of TV. 
congratulations are in order because you are now a showrunner, we hear, on the To All the Boys I've Loved Before spinoff on Netflix, XO Kitty, with Jenny Han herself. Yes. Yes. so great. I'm such a huge fan. I'm so excited. I mean, I've watched all the To All the Boys I've Loved Before shows. So So tell us how the show and the collaboration came to be. Well, I had um, been sort of in the Netflix family for a while, and Jenny is uh, this incredible author and very busy as well with another one of her series of books is being turned into a series for Amazon. So she needed somebody to come in and sort of help run Exo Kitty with her and someone who was very well versed with television and who knew sort of the Netflix system. So I think she had just heard about me through co-workers and maybe agents and who knows how any of this ever really gets set up in Hollywood. But we ended up meeting and we immediately connected and thought we're going to get along great. We're going to be able to do this together. And so we we joined up to do Exo Kitty. And that was about 10 months ago. So we are deep in production now. We are um, I'm heading back to Seoul next week. We're filming the whole show. It will be filmed in Seoul, which was announced by Netflix. Mm-hmm. I'm not giving away any secrets. Okay, good. <laughs> but I'm really excited about it. And I think, I mean, I hope it's it's going to be amazing. It's going to be very amazing and exciting. And oh, truly a diverse cast in a way that is thrilling for me. Oh, that's exciting. So you're just starting filming. So we don't know when to expect it yet. We don't know when. It will be 2023-ish. I mean, it will definitely be 2023, but I don't know when. Oh, this is exciting. Yeah. So in college, Uh, you majored in theater, playwriting, working TV writer. You have written viral articles, a memoir, now fiction with blood sugar, show running. I want to ask, like, how much of this is part of the plan? And I have to believe there's a plan because you've already said you're type A and you're thinking, right. So there's always a plan. But how much of this was part of it? And when do you veer from it? And this was the plan since I was, well, I growing up loved television in the, in the eighties, even when it was like bad, you right. know, when it was like, um, and five things. Yeah. If I was fantasy Island and heart to heart and uh, the golden girls, which is sort of still, oh. I think one of the best written enacted series ever. Absolutely. But I love TV and I loved being with the same characters week after week. And my father was a journalist. So being a writer was sort of something that was in the family and something that was a viable profession. It wasn't like a crazy thought. So growing up, I knew I wanted to write and I always kept a diary and I was always sort of the weird kid who was like a little bit, I'm I'm so extroverted, so I wasn't a loner, but I was a little bit not not included a lot. So I was often writing my own stories, writing my own sort of takes on life and I went to college knowing that I wanted to study playwriting because I felt theater with a theater background, it could it could work in a lot of ways. It's just very simple storytelling stripped down and it's dialogue and I could use it for TV or movies or go to New York and write plays or write fiction. I I just sort of felt like that's going to be my base. And then at Boston College, I was in this comedy troupe. I don't know if you guys ever saw them. Hello, Shovelhead. Oh, no way. That's amazing. And I auditioned my you know first month, freshman year, and I got in. And I was in this comedy troupe, which was sketch comedy, for all four years. And the joy I felt at writing a sketch, having other actors perform it, and having the audience laugh, I knew I'm a TV writer. 
So that made me decide I'm going to move to LA and I'm going to write for TV and all the other twists and turns was, you know, a way to get there. And TV is my love and I will continue to do that. And being a showrunner is sort of for TV, it's a different structure than with movies. The showrunner is the, the head writer and sort of the creator of the world of the show. And so that's always been my goal and I will continue to do that. But then also I love if I have an idea that I think is better in a different, you know, in a format of a memoir or a novel or an article, I'm always open to that. So yes, it's the plan and yeah. it, it was the plan and it, it is, I could not be happier that I'm living my dream that I yeah. plotted out. I mean, that is the sweet spot, right? When you can stick to the plan, but also be open to whatever else yeah. comes in. I mean, that viral article is how you've launched, as you said, you launched so many opportunities just from that. So Sticking to the plan, but being open, we're still working yes. on that. So yeah. Following little offshoots yeah. Yes. Yeah. while also staying on the main path. Yes. Yeah. I think that's an important, I think for writers specifically, you have to write in that I meet many people that have ideas and that's great or say they're going to write something and they never do. But if you're a writer, you really sit down every day and you write something and you never know which something is going to catch fire. But if you're always writing something and you, you know, have a little bit of talent and you keep trying, something could catch. So, um, yeah. So I've done a little online stalking. Of you. Oh, I'm not, not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. And I feel like we're kindred spirits a little bit here, not just because we graduated Boston College the same year, all of us, but your website says you adore all things unicorns. Same, obsessed. I didn't, there's one thing. You have your boxers running around. I have a bulldog. But here's the thing. You have a picture on Insta that I have to ask about of yourself dressed as Anne of Green Gables with a caption that said, you know, she made an appearance in the writer's room. There is nothing I love more than Anne of Green Gables. So I need you to explain what this photo means. And are we truly kindred spirits here? Um, We might be. So in um, Exo Kitty Writer's Room, because of the changes of the past two years, writer's rooms rooms are now over Zoom, where they used to be in person. And it was incredibly like there's this camaraderie. We'd show up at 9 a.m. and start talking about what we were going to eat for lunch. And that was like the day in the writer's room. But now it's over Zoom. So everything feels a little disconnected. So for Exo Kitty, one of our writers had this idea that every Friday would be theme day and we would wear an outfit And we would take a screen grab and we started doing that. And it was like gave us something to look forward to on Fridays to actually put on clothes that weren't sweatpants. And so that Friday was our favorite childhood character day. So I fully just was obsessed with Anne of Green Gables. And so that was my my that Friday's outfit. So she is your favorite childhood yes, character. Yes. Oh, thank God. Okay. I mean, she, just... she was uh, just, yeah, the moxie, the strength. Oh, I so related to her. I so was like, I'm alone, but yet I will force my way into a social structure. <laughs> yes. And, and I will read books and I will yes. succeed. Mm-hmm. Oh, everything. And I will everything. be smart and misunderstood. And by the way, Boston College was not the place for me socially. <laughs> it was rough. Right. You're like, Perhaps the Anne of Green Gables theme. Now, you also have the red hair. I mean, you had, this was perfect. Yes. Really perfect. It was, 
Yes. Have you been to Prince Edward Island? I have not. Oh, have not. it's beautiful. And if you're into Anne, it's actually a little bit freaky. I mean, there's a stage production every day in Charlottesville. Oh, my God. They, Charlottetown, sorry, where they do a stage production of Anne of Green Gables. You can visit the house. I got engaged there. Oh, I mean, it's very, yeah. I should go. I need- You should. In your free time. <laughs> you see, my free, the, other, the other place I want to go is... Have you seen the movie Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeves? And it's no. it's a real it's like 1982. Ooh. It's this amazingly beautiful and sad time travel love story, and it's shot on an island that you can go visit that hotel. I'm like, I have to go there and be like a fangirl. Yes. So there's further online stalking that I did, and I think from my online stalking that you're a Scorpio. Is this yes. true? Yes. So we ask all our authors what's their sign and whether they relate to it. And so I was pretty sure I knew your sign. How do you do you feel very Scorpio? I do feel very Scorpio. I feel like Scorpios are very extreme. And I am an extreme person. I'm sort of all or nothing. I feel like I make the most loyal friend, but do not cross me. Yeah. Because I will never forget. I can be a little scary. And so some of my friends are even more scared now that they've read Blood Sugar. But um, I, yeah, I totally am a Scorpio. But then, you know, I read, I don't really believe in any of it, but then I totally get sucked in when I read my horoscopes. I'm like, oh yeah, it's totally real. It's all real. The parts you like are real. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's right. I was curious because you Scorpio is a fixed sign and you don't seem like a fixed sign because you you do incremental change because fixed signs usually don't change at all. And if they do, it's like sudden dramatic change. But you've been implementing incremental change and then also toggling between things. So I wasn't sure, but it could be other things at play. I Yeah, I think that my dreams and goals have been incredibly fixed mm. and I have not wavered right but the way I see them is wider than maybe it appears from the outside okay Mm -hmm. that makes makes sense sense. that tracks yes that Mm -hmm. does track so your birthday posts were also very easy to find on your Instagram because you always mark with an asana a yoga asana challenge and your progress on your birthday I am also a devout yoga practitioner. I credit it with saving my life many times, like just the practice. It brings me compassion and awareness and balance. And I was wondering what yoga means to you. In my 20s, I literally remember sort of saying, I do not want my body and my mind to be connected at all. I want to like sleep with people I don't care about. I just completely just like emotionally want to be disconnected from my physical being. And then when I turned 30 and yoga was one of those things that I was like, oh, God, people who do yoga. And when I turned 30 and got divorced, I had this sort of epiphany that I was my goal in my 30s was I cannot hate something unless I try it because I was big into like, I hate that. And I never even tried it because, you know, yeah, I was in my 20s. (laughs) And so yoga was one of those things. Were you in L.A. at the time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it easy. Was I was too. That's when when I found yoga, it was in LA and it's very easy to hate it because it's part of the LA culture, Thing. caricature culture. culture. Yes. yes, yes, yes. I took a very, what, see, it, now looking back, I'm like, oh, is it proper yoga? Because now I'm a little bit snobby. I'm like, I'm now the person that I would have hated in my 20s about yoga. <laughs> but in Venice, there was this place called Yaz, which yes. is spinning plus yoga. Yes. So that was my way in because I thought, well, it's really a spinning class. It's really cardio. 
but then you do some yoga. So I started doing that. And then I realized I love the yoga half hour way more than the spinning half hour. And then I got more and more involved in different yoga studios and breathing. And what changed for me, my mm. changed my life mm-hmm. was breathing. Yeah. I never actually breathed properly until I think I was 34 years old and like four years into my yoga practice. Yes. I still don't. So if you guys could teach me, that'd be great. Do yoga. Do yoga. Corinne swears she's going to take me. Mm. I can only go with a spiritual guide like one of you or I'll (laughs) end up rolling my eyes at some bad yoga class. So I need I need like a shepherd to bring me along. It's breath and then all the other stuff is great. You, You know, it's not about competition. It's not about what you can do that other people can't do. It's about your own breath, your own goals, your and truly feeling centered. I do. I wake up most mornings and do yoga even for 20 minutes just to like center myself literally balance wise and figuratively. Yeah, I remember it was where I really started to notice things like my toes really scrunching up. I'm like, oh, God, this is just how I am. I'm always like this. And so you start to relax it on the mat, which feels safe. And then you start to little by little bring that off the mat, too. Where did you practice? I, I was a big yoga works, both Santa Monica and Main Street. So those are those are intense for those of you listening. The Santa Monica Yoga Works, I feel like, is like the fashion week of yoga. It's really it's beautiful people wearing three hundred dollar sets crammed in together, including the yoga instructors who don't make more than like twenty dollars an hour. But But they're all they're all actors. Actually, this is so, oh my God. So at Boston College, I taught aerobics. Oh, no way. And it was like my job. I taught four days a week. It was amazing. And I taught step aerobics in one of the big gyms and I had a headset and I, I like, I loved it because it was oh a way to like. Could we, could we just clarify that we did not go to college in the eighties, but with, you just said step aerobics. It yes. sounds like maybe we and did with no, leg warmers. Step, but step aerobics was <laughs> no, huge I, in the mid nineties. It was. That's, I know. You know, That's true. Sure, the step. You're yes. right. The, the step, step and you you go over and you go yes so, yes so when I moved to LA in 1998 I thought oh I could be an aerobics instructor in LA because you know I'm certified in like five different certifications and all the things and I'm and so I went to a few gyms in LA and they were like we need a headshot and I said but oh no I'm not an actor I just want to teach aerobics they're like no 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 all of our aerobics instructors have headshots. And I was like, oh, I don't look perfect enough for this job. I'm not thin enough. I can't teach aerobics in LA. This is a whole different. So I feel like the yoga instructors in LA also were like that, like perfect physical. So yeah, Santa Monica. So I went also, I never, I was more of a mid city. I did Golden Bridge for a long time, which was really like a lot of chanting and very specific Kundalini and Russell Brand ended up sort of ruining that yoga studio. (laughs) It was that very LA story. Yes. I started in LA there. And then when I came to New York, I got very, I don't know what the word is, but I started going to Jiva Mukti and then it was like very serious. I thought then that was, that was really Didn't you get certified, Corinne? Aren't you like- Yes, not in Jiva Mukti, which is really intense to even get to teach there. But I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm certified yoga teacher. Yeah, it saved, really saved my life. Not an exaggeration. So I always love seeing that from you too, so- Thank you. And I, and then I, you probably saw that I had like massive shoulder, shoulder yes. surgery. So it's still really affect. So I just got actually cortisone shot today, nine months after the surgery. So I'm not back a hundred percent at all yeah. yet, but I am trying to just 
Yes, I was going to say, that's the practice. That's what you learn. You know, it's not about how far you get. Ultimately, it's every single day you come there and you work with what you have. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My mother is 83. She's incredible. She's been doing yoga since like the 60s. And she she sits on the floor. She gets up. I don't have to worry about her falling and breaking a hip. And that's the end of her. Like uh, yoga is so incredible. If you just stick with it through all the decades, it's she's just so strong and limper and like she's amazing. I love that. That's that's a reason to do it. Yes, Yes. that's right. There's a lot of reasons that apply to me. I just (laughs) haven't yet found that. So I want to just talk a little bit about Glow, which you've already mentioned. I'm so many of your shows. By the way, I've also seen every single episode of the Babysitters Club multiple times. I did not read the books when I was young, but my daughter loves the show. So multiple. Did she read the books too? Are the books still popular with the? Okay, I loved the books, but I've got to get on the show too. It's legit good. I I love the books, and I've heard the show is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, but so as far as this podcast goes, I really think it's a hole in our content that we haven't covered. Glow because. There's so much there for the complicated women, the female friendships. I had finished season one and I wrote on Instagram that the show is not about wrestling. It's about our worst mistakes, finding out who we are, overcoming obstacles and making amends. It's about the stories we tell ourselves to survive and finding the strength to change the narrative. And of course, it was also laugh out loud funny with some incredible 80s music. I mean, where what am I missing here? This is everything I want to see. And the friendship between Ruth and Debbie played brilliantly by Alison Brie and Betty Gilpin. And then also the off-screen duo of Liz and Carly behind the show. It's just, there's so much to talk about. There's so much good stuff there. How was that experience for you? Did you love being on that show? And it felt so fresh and exciting and original when it first came out. It was like, wow. I... Absolutely loved it. And I went in when you're a writer, sort of a staff writer is the person in the room that with the least experience. And then there's all these titles that you sort of inch up along the way. And when I had met with Liz and Carly and Genji, I was at a producer level, which means you're a writer, you're writing episodes, you're in the you're in the room, but you can also make some decisions about props or cast or, or things like that as you start getting that producer title. And when you're not working, you go to many meetings and figure out what should be your next show. And there's all sorts of different like ideas about should you be coy? Should you be busy? Should be you sort of play it like you could take it or leave it with glow. I went in and I was like, I want this job. This show is amazing. (laughs) I want to work with you. I will take this job. My agent will kill me for saying this because I will make five. I don't care. I want to be here. Mm-hmm. And I, I really did. And that was an incredible three years for me. And then by the fourth season, I had had a development deal with Netflix. So I was doing my own thing and I was going to loop back in. And then COVID mm-hmm. shut the yeah. fourth season down. But it was truly, it was mostly women in the writer's room. It was mostly women producers. It was mostly women directors. It was just, everything was through a female gaze. Yes. And it was back to the, you know, the tampons. It yes. was really an amazing, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. I didn't quite understand. I actually did watch Glow when I was younger and I was kind of into that angle. But then I was like, no, do I really want to watch a show about wrestling? Not really. And then I, as soon as I started watching it, you're like, this is not a show about wrestling at all. Even though that was so much of the source of the comedy and the humor was so funny. 
And so much of what was happening behind the scenes was really happening where these actresses or actors, they did a lot of those stunts. They were truly taught how to wrestle um, by Chavo, who's an incredible, famous wrestler himself who came in. And we had some stunt doubles, of course, and we had this incredible stunt coordinator, Shauna Duggins, who was the first woman to ever win an Emmy for stunt coordinating. She's unbelievable for GLOW. But these women were finding their strength in wrestling while playing wrestlers in glow. And it was an incredible thing to see. Yeah. And I'm Um, sure it brought so much of the magic to it because it did feel so incredibly authentic, even though, you know, they're acting and and they're good actors. Sure. But there was something really magical, uh, especially about the first season of that show. It was, it was very special. And I think, you know, for the most part, just had a very like loving feeling for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'd like to hear that. Yeah. Speaking of loving, before we let you leave, we have to find out what you're loving. Like maybe are there any books you're loving right now, other TV shows, movies? I mean, we know you're busy, so. Yeah. What am I loving right now? I am reading right now, which I'm enjoying very much, is called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Oh, yeah. Which is really fun. You probably have it. I'm, that's, <laughs> I think that's from came out like three years ago. I love the the cover. I haven't read it yet. It's <laughs> I really, here, it's but. very thought provoking. My television watching, because I try to create good content, when I watch good content, it stresses me out because I'm like, I should be writing. Uh-huh. I should be working. I should have thought of that. So when I am truly busy, what I watch and love are reality shows. Really, really. And my husband actually edits reality. And Uh so everything I like, like Vanderpump Rules and Real Housewives and Love is Blind. She's a big Vanderpump Rules fan. You're not a Housewives person though, right, Corinne? But you're a Vanderpump. Some Housewives, some some of them. But some, yeah, I'm a Beverly Hills. I got hooked years ago and I'm just, I'm there for it. American Idol every year, 20 years in. I love Idol. Love Idol. So my television, watching is not very erudite no but but whatever yes and kate doesn't watch reality tv so i'm always looking except idol but i don't put things like and the voice i've watched the times too singing really just singing contest because i have a yeah it's because i have a not so secret desire to be a singer and i can't sing a note so (laughs) so you you live vicariously (laughs) correct yes Yes, it Um, is one of those where i can appreciate the talent that i don't have yeah no, mm-hmm. I, and I love how Idol is really sort of feel good since ABC took it over five years ago, mm-hmm. whereas before mm-hmm. it was like, I totally watched it every year, but it was a little bit like, let's make fun of some people. And now it's just like, let's celebrate people and like, just makes yeah. me feel good. Yeah. yeah, because now also the the judges and everything has changed. That yeah. Lionel Richie and Luke Bryan yeah. and Katy Perry, I mean, that you're getting much more feel good. No more yeah. Simon Cowell. Yeah. And they're like, you're horrible, you know, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So. Okay, but that makes sense. And getting yes. stressed out, I actually could see that. that yeah. I could see that happening to me oh, if I were yeah. The flight at like flight attendant so good, but I'm like, I shouldn't be watching this. I should be writing. And one of my favorite shows of all time, which I, I actually watched in between jobs because it was Nurse Jackie and, and Liz and Carly that created Glow came from Nurse Jackie, among other things. But Nurse Jackie, I think, is one of the best shows I've ever seen. And it's the kind of show that I watch it and I'm in awe of it. And I'm like, but I should, yeah. I should be working. Yes. So that's always the sweet spot, right? When you love it, but it also 
builds a fire in you. You're like, I got to do something this good. I got to pull up my game kind of thing. Get get into the game. So that's the sweet spot of, of yeah. really good content. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. We have really enjoyed this. We bombarded you with a lot. You are a very good sport. Thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for dealing with the barking doggies. Oh, Ooh, barking no. dogs and will blo- take any time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And blood sugar is out, yes. so everyone should go get it and read it and and talk about share it. it. Yes. yes, come to us. Yes, please. debate it. We've read debate it. it. We'll debate you. Debate it. Book club it. Yes. Where can people stalk you? As I've already done, are you mostly Instagram? I am Instagram Sasha G Rothschild. I am Twitter, although you know who knows after today how long. But I'm <laughs> Sasha Rothschild on Twitter. I have a website that has unicorns and glitter mm-hmm. on it. Um, it does. That's SashaRothschild.com. And Jenny Han has forced me to join TikTok, TikTok. Oh, which I don't <laughs> understand at all. I've posted four things. No one's watched them. I just, I have not harnessed it, but technically I'm on TikTok. Well, technically, so is Pop Fiction Women, and we've never put anything okay. on there so, either. Yeah. And I'll have to consult my teenage sons on yeah. on TikTok. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I uh, Jenny is a wizard when it comes to TikTok. Uh, oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed the show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, Go to popfictionwomen.com and keep it complicated.